Welcome to The Rot Focus, a podcast for rotters, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Rooms, all from Rotters Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, drive a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therockfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. It's the last official episode for Discovering Plot and the final two stages of the greatest plot structure for writers, the archetypal story pattern. While many of us have our favorite plot structure, All the ones that I've analyzed and taught over many years cannot match to the adaptability and flexibility of the archetypal story pattern. Hopefully, with the variety of discussed plots, all writers will see that the archetypal story pattern is the greatest method we can use. In this episode, we have stages 11 and 12. Stage 11 is called Resurrection of the Evil and the Protagonist. This is the culminating battle between the protagonist and the antagonist. And we writers have four tasks to give our readers a satisfactory ending that leads them to our next story, which is always our goal. Yes, even romantic comedies and literary fiction have battles, with words sharper than swords often. Stage 12 is called Return with the Elixir. This is our triumphant protagonist drinking with the gods to celebrate victory. We'll have three more episodes before we call this series Done and Dusted. For now, it's on with the episode. Stage 11, Resurrection of the Evil. Dual Enemies of Evil and the Self. Resurrection, Return from the Dead. Although famous authors have played with the idea of resurrection, Our protagonists don't have to turn into zombies, neither do our antagonists. Resurrection is not new life. It is the reanimation of the old life, the former problem, the continuing central conflict of the entire story. Stage 11 of the archetypal story pattern is a dual resurrection. Before we get into our explanation, let's look at three famous resurrection scenes. Three is a good number to choose from. Lewis Carroll tells us in The Hunting of the Snark, what I tell you three times is true. From the film Kill Bill. In Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, the bride is buried alive, grave deep, encased in a pine wood coffin. Her enemies believe she is dead and buried with no hope of resurrection. Yet she wakes, assesses her situation, and implements a plan. She punches through the soft pine, then kicks and crawls out of the grave. Her resurrection shocks an old man. More shocks await the audience. Her enemies have turned on each other. The black mamba, Daryl Hannah as L Driver, killed the loyal brother Bud, and soon she is destroyed by the bride. Uma Thurman is Beatrix Kiddo, in a battle that was voted in 2005 as Best Fight at the MTV Movie Awards. We are shocked when the bride snatches out Elle's remaining eye, just as Pay Me snatched out her first one. Lesson 1A, the resurrection must shock. 
Lesson 2a. The resurrection, whether for the protagonist or the antagonist, must parallel another event in the story. It should not be deliberately foreshadowed. However, it should mirror an event. In the audience's afterthought, the parallelism will become a logical foreshadowing. Lesson 3a. The resurrection must present poetic justice. El Driver killed Pa May, whom she hated because he snatched out her eye. Beatrix Kiddo kills El Driver, not only in defense, but also because El killed Pa May, whom Beatrix loved. Deathly Hallows. Harry Potter's Deathly Hallows Part 2 gives us a resurrection of the protagonist after J.K. Rowling played throughout the entire series with the resurrection of the antagonistic force. Because of the Philosopher's Stone, Harry does not die. In his reward, he is reunited with Dumbledore and discovers victory is not only possible, but nigh. In the resurrection stage, he returns to his body. Voldemort is celebrating. Hagrid is grieving. Yet we, the audience, see the beginning tatters of the Death Eater's collapse as Draco Malfoy's mother actually lies to Voldemort. Her lie tells us that Voldemort is not omniscient. Those who are not omniscient are also not omnipotent. The mano a mano battle between Harry and Voldemort is intercut with scenes of Hermione and Ron tackling the genie, the Horcrux holding Python. Hermione and Ron can seemingly do nothing against Nagini. Harry seems equally matched to Voldemort, neither able to get an advantage over the other. Enter Neville Longbottom. Neville's unexpected defeat of the snake is juxtaposed with Harry's expected defeat of Voldemort. Neville is the surprise in this parallel resurrection scene. Nagini's death receives our audience's exultant shout while we merely celebrate Voldemort's disintegration. We glory in Harry's power of overwhelming Voldemort, but we are not punching the air in celebration. Lesson 1b. If the protagonist's battle with the chief antagonist will contain no shock, then another character, playing an unexpected role, should step forward. Lesson 2b. The parallelism of the resurrection scene can be with other characters beside the protagonist or antagonist. Lesson 3b. The poetic justice occurs with Voldemort's defeat and death. The best part of this scene is his horrified look at the Elder One. Now, at his end, he realizes it does not answer to him as he expected it would. His richly deserved death almost seems anticlimactic, deserved yet subdued, pitiful while we feel no pity, almost beautiful in his dissolution. Return of the King Gollum's reappearance in J.R.R. Tolkien's culminating resurrection scene for Return of the King is a necessary surprise. The surprise occurs because Frodo and Sam left Gollum behind. Gollum's participation in this scene is a necessity because the ring has finally corrupted Frodo's intention. Like Rowling's Voldemort, Gollum is a dead creature throughout the series. He lived off the dead goblins who fell into the abysses of the mines of Moria. His old hobbity self warred constantly with his evil self until the hobbity self died completely 
leaving only the evil self alive. Gollum's disappearance seemingly removed him from the immediate storyline. Then he reappears to fight Frodo in the lava-filled doom of Mount Mordor, just as Bilbo had his own mental battle with Gollum in The Hobbit. Parallelism. Because Gollum once possessed his precious, he understands how to find a wearer of the ring. No one else in the series has understood this. Yet for the audience, it is still a shock when he leaps upon the invisible Frodo. They fight, a staggering stumble of pummels and buffets on the edge of the rocky spit over the lava river. The second shock occurs when Gollum bites off Frodo's finger to get the ring. He dances to his death. And with the ring's destruction, Sauron's entity is destroyed. The trapped eye of Sauron's essence frizzedly tries to tear itself away from the destroyed ring, but cannot. Lesson 1c. Gollum's surprising return, his shocking ability to see Frodo as well as biting off his finger, mutilation to the hand, is somehow more shocking than other grievous bodily harm. Lesson 2c. Frodo and Bilbo had parallel battles, physical and mental, against Gollum. Bilbo outwits Gollum. Gollum defeats Frodo. Lesson 3c. Gollum dances as he falls to his death, and with the ring's destruction, Frodo is returned to his pure self. His innocent intent is resurrection. Sauron tied his essence to the thing, believing it indestructible, only to find he could not break the tie when the indestructible is destroyed. Four compass points to the resurrection. The resurrection requires from us writers four important points as we begin wrapping up our story. Aim north is the first. The protagonists face their own mortality, whether it is a brief brush or an imminent danger or an actual death. How the protagonists confront death is the salient point. Facing death reveals the extreme importance of the protagonist's desire to achieve the ultimate goal that set them on this journey. The goal may have changed. The original desire has not. The deer may have changed and should have. The desire that fuels the old and new deer will not have changed. Contrast the bride with Frodo. She is fully conscious. He is under the influence of the ring. She is driven. He became aimless. She visits poetic justice twice upon El Driver, the eye snatch and her presumed death from the viper she used to kill Bud. Frodo received no ironical justice. Gollum defeats him, then falls to his death. Frodo is ringless and ring-fingerless. Our protagonist's honor and ability shine through when they face their mortality and still plunge into the last battle. Death may occur. They willingly face it. Why? Their desired goal is more important than their own self. Second, drive southward to the doom. The antagonists face their own mortality. To kill an antagonist who does not realize he is being killed creates a sense of futility, and the antagonist's response to impending death is diametrically opposed to the protagonist's response. The antagonists fear death. Voldemort hid parts of his soul in the Horcruxes, then hid his Horcruxes in a bid to live on and on and on. 
Unlike the Energizer Bunny, however, his life is more in danger because of his piecemeal soul. Gollum is so obsessed with the ring that he does not realize his danger or death. He died years and years before. His obsession with the ring gave him purpose. Its loss restored him to the upper world. The new ring bearer, almost, almost, what a pitiful word, resurrected his humanity. Only in Gollum's last blink does he recognize death is on him. Then we see a brief glimpse of his terror. In the next blink, he is gone. The death and destruction of Sauron's eye, however, gives us the essential realization of impending death. The eye's frenzy becomes more powerful than Gollum's blink. Third, head to the expected east. The resurrection is both destruction and recreation. The antagonist is destroyed. The antagonistic force is defeated. The evil is stuffed into a coffin. Writers who want a sequel need to take lessons from Tolkien and Rowling. Each book must have its own antagonist to be defeated, while the series antagonist must be completely defeated in the final book of the series. No hiding additional Hercorxes give the story up. Love your protagonists too much to let them live happily ever after? Then start a new series, years on, with a completely different antagonist. Recreation is as important as destruction. Harry is his own self and more. He breaks the Elder Wand and tosses it into an abyssal canyon, the film. In the book, he restores it to Dumbledore's tomb, still a severed connection. Harry refuses to wield the great power gifted to him. He refuses to be corrupted by power. Thank you, Lord Acton, who said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Frodo is restored to his own self, yet he is also broken by wearing the ring. He must leave with the last elves. The bride is now free to seek her daughter, restoring the connection and creating a future with her daughter. Her battle with Bill is not titanic, although it is matchless. It allows the elixir, which is the last stage of the archetypal story pattern. And lastly, fourth, skew west. As noted in these lessons, the resurrection must shock the audience. Not with gore, not with a new twist. A new twist only continues the story longer. The shock must be something the audience didn't anticipate, yet in hindsight, truly appreciates. No foreshadowing for the shock. We have to build the elements in such a way that we logically accept their occurrence, even as we emotionally celebrate them. This shock is particularly hard to write, since the early on stage two set up our anticipation of the final battle. Neville's chopping off of Nagini's head is the shock. Baltimore ripped Neville's soul away when he killed his parents. Neville has had to rebuild his soul. How fitting that Neville kills the last holder of Voldemort's piecemeal soul. As for the audience, well, we knew what Voldemort would be defeated. Knowing the antagonist will be defeated is not where the shock will occur, unless our audience is reading one of the so-called edgy new series in which the protagonist is killed. Killing the protagonist, by the way, is not edgy. It infuriates the audience. It's a cheap way to be edgy. We writers are better than that. Find another way. Keep the audience reading to your next series. The Eye Snatch is unexpected relish from Quentin Tarantino.
in Kill Bill. Gollum's reappearance surprises, then we are shocked when he takes the ring and the ring finger from Frodo. And then we nod at Neville, at the bride, at Frodo. Yes, that is symbolic parity. Remember the three lessons and the four compass points when constructing the ultimate battle scene of destruction and resurrection. The expected and the unexpected will satisfy the audience. Not only will they keep reading to the end of the book, they will also buy the next and the next and the next. Stage 12, Return with the Elixir, Drinking with the Gods. Return with the Elixir is the final stage of the archetypal story pattern and the last section on characters and mythic story structure. More importantly, the Return with the Elixir is our conclusion to this guidebook and to our story. It's not a toss-off that we complete with our writing eyes closed. As writers, we have slaved to create intriguing characters, unexpected twists in plot, enthralling details with symbols, motifs, situations, settings, and captivating elements of wordcraft on every page. None of it matters if the last scenes don't deliver. First, it's a return. In the last three stages, the road back, the resurrection, and the return with the elixir, these belong to the greater archetypal story pattern segment of return and reintegration. Our protagonists return to their ordinary world, circling back to stage one and the story's starting point. They have changed, transforming like an acorn into a mighty oak. The roots that they sent deep into their souls to discover who and what they are have become the honor and ethics that guide them. Their trunks, their inner strength, are sturdy. Their limbs reach into the sky, and they are fulfilled with the potential for more and more and more each year a new harvest of acorns. They know how they are different from the antagonist, as well as from the rather ordinary people of their ordinary world. They are no longer ordinary people facing extraordinary events, by facing those extraordinary events, they have become extraordinary on their own. Harry Potter destroys his connection to the Elder Wand, a decision neither Ron nor Hermione understand. No one needs that much power, even though Harry has that much power within himself. Remember, Voldemort tried to use the Elder Wand to defeat Harry. Harry defeated Voldemort and the Elder Wand because of the power within himself. Aragorn, the returned king, releases the cursed dead men of Dunharrow. The Iron Man no longer needs the rush of power from his suits. Elizabeth and Darcy, in Pride and Prejudice, no longer depend on the world to determine who they are and what they want. Our protagonists have succeeded. How do they now reintegrate with the ordinary world that they left behind? For they must reintegrate. No one, not even protagonists, can live perpetually in aught. The humdrum daily world intrudes. Life happens. That settling back into the ordinary world helps the reader and audience settle the story in their mind. Deny them that reintegration, and they will be unsettled about the story. It requires an elixir, second. An elixir is the drink of the gods. Better than hunting nectar, the god's elixir is magical and miraculous. The elixir is tied directly to the reward which harks back all the way back to the original deer we destroyed at the call to adventure, 
on stage two. The original deer drove the protagonist into their journey. That desire transformed and mutated as much as our protagonist did. At the rewards, stage nine, the protagonist grasped their new and renewed deers, a first opportunity to celebrate with the treasure that sustained their persistence, their tribulations, and motivated them to continue through the ultimate battle. Now the protagonists have the transformed deer. The return of both to the ordinary world is a celebration. We have tangibles and intangibles. Depending on genre, the elixir takes various forms, but all contain the duality of literal and figurative. Protagonist and audience need a tangible elixir, not a symbol or metaphor. The king crowned, the broken sword restored, the ring on her finger, the award, our diploma, our lectern that represents the pinnacle achieved. The intangible is all that those items represent. The king's crown represents authority, status, and respect. By knowing the elixir at the very end, we writers can improve our characters' motivations all the way back in stage one, ordinary world. This is the reason for planning rather than pastoring. The restored sword is a veteran appreciated, wounds healed, rank reacquired. The betrothal ring is love and devotion, commitment and truth, health and home. The pinnacle achieved, esteem from others, recognition for work and persistence and creativity, adulation, which sets up the next book, doesn't it? As the protagonist struggles with personal pride and extreme adulation. It seems simple and complex with the archetypal story pattern. Archetypes do seem simple, but they are not. They are not stereotypes. They are not cookie-cutter models. They create a framework for our writer's curiosity. We delve into causes and motivations, fears and fortes, and desires and needs for our characters. These six causes, motivations, fears, fortes, desires, needs. These create individuals from flat character outlines. Archetypes build a framework, a strong foundation that will support the building of the entire story. Exploring each stage of the archetypal story pattern offers stories with unexpected depths that will please our audiences. And when our audiences are pleased, we writers are too. What do writers want to know about plot? What do writers need to know about plot? The right focus is taking a comprehensive view of plot, the structure that develops characters, genre expectations, major story structures, pacing, tension, suspense. We cover it all in this series entitled Discovering Your Plot from M.A. Lee's Guidebook of the Same Name. Writers will discover unexpected insights and methods that deepen their understanding of this major craft in the storytelling world. Thanks for listening to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by M.A. Lee from Writers, Inc. Books, assisted by Remy Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. 
Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at winkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps, and you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.